0: Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randalls. And this is where evidence based medicine meets unconventional warfare.
1: The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army,
0: Navy, or Air Force. Hi everyone, this is Michelle Landers, founding publisher of the JSOM. I'd like to thank you for joining the JSOM's 20th Anniversary Interview Series. We are excited to bring together a host of experts, all leaders in the soft medical community. In these interviews, we will be discussing the ever-evolving methods of treating battlefield trauma and injury, and how those methods have changed over the 20 years since the JSOM's inception. I hope you'll find these talks as informative as we do. And welcome back to the JSOM 20th Anniversary Interview Series. We have the privilege today of speaking with... Andy, one of the other infamous folks within the soft medical community who, like Monty, is ubiquitously known by his first and only name. Obviously, just kidding. <laughs> this is uh, Andy Fisher, who has spent an extensive amount of time in soft medicine and continues to push his education. And As a little bit of background, Andy, you mind updating some of the folks about your career so far in soft and then also what you're doing these days?
1: Yeah. Uh, Started off as an infantryman and, in, uh, the first range battalion back in the, uh, you know, early mid nineties. And then after that, I went to an EMT course and well, during my enlistment, I went to an EMT course. And then when I got out, I kind of fiddled around with that for a little bit while going to school. Eventually, uh, you know, while I was stayed in the guard, I changed my MOS to a medic. Um, eventually I would go to PA school to the iPad mm-hmm. program and, graduate from there. Spent a year in Korea, and then I was able to go back to 1st Ranger Battalion as the PA there, and uh, spent six years there from 07 to 13, and then moved on to the Reginald Special troops Battalion and uh, spent two years, and then I was the Regimental PA for a year. And now I am a fourth-year medical student at Texas A&M, graduating here in about 100 days or so. Pleasure to have you about to be Dr. Fisher on the show. And as an aside, it was
0: really, really funny. I was at SAMHSA a couple of years ago when you gave a lecture, and one of the uh, folks next to me, I think maybe it was international or something, but was quite upset that we were having a med student on the main stage. And, and I got to say, oh, no, man, you don't understand who that is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I liked it. It makes people so angry. And I don't know why it's like our medical students, do they not have capability to interpret and analyze and, you know, bring something forth that is worthwhile. It's like, no, boo, you're only a medical student. And it happens everywhere. And it's just, it makes me laugh. So I tend to probably use it more than I should.
0: Yeah, yeah I enjoyed it. Well, I'm really excited to chat today with you about think a very innovative topic that has got a whole lot of press lately, both in the civilian practice, but most importantly in the military practice, and that's the use of whole blood in the pre-hospital setting, which I think you've got a fair amount of background with.
1: Uh, It's small. Small.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so we'll start off by having you answer for us. What was the origin of pre hospital whole blood? Was this a, a civilian or a military practice that you decided to incorporate into your practice?
1: I think it was probably, you know, it's a little bit of both. Historically, I think if you go back to, you know, World War II, they certainly had utilized pre hospital blood and blood components. And we saw that kind of you know move forward you know all the way I think to the Vietnam War and then we used clear fluids for a long time, uh, but it was you know being invited by the Thor guys over to come and talk to them about the use of pre-hospital whole blood that really kind of got us going down this path you know I think most soft units had a threshold blood transfusion protocol in place. And so we weren't necessarily creating something new from that aspect, but we were trying to simply you know, streamline the process to make it more readily available to be able to do it in a, in a faster manner. And so, yeah, we took some of it from previous military use. We took it from the civilian uh, pre-hospital use. If you look back to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota it has been doing whole blood for a long time. What was specific about ours is we initially, we were just trying to do it as fresh whole blood and not, you know, cold stored whole blood.
0: Yeah. And and going back and looking at the literature, it looks like there was a initial uh, sprinkling of publications in the aughts from some of the more renowned folks in our community, like Holcomb and uh, Dr. Jenkins and, and all those guys talking about their experience using uh, walking blood banks at fixed facilities in a deployed setting. And that was specifically because in MASCAL settings, they would uh, run out of the resource. But I think what they noticed initially was that it may actually even be a more effective product. And can you tell us about how did you help shepherd that transition from whole blood in a fixed deployed setting over to a pre-hospital setting?
1: Yeah, certainly, uh, yeah, we should probably mentioned the fact that, you know, doctors Holcomb, uh, Spinella, Murdoch, so many others were really instrumental in kind of bringing threshold blood to that hospital-based setting. And and they did kind of notice that there were superior outcomes compared to the component therapy that they were doing at that time. I guess most of the units at the time did have some sort of protocol in place. If you look at the fourth iteration of the range of medic handbook, the Threshold blood transfusion protocol is probably four pages long and we were challenged at saying how do we make this into a more useful protocol and that's essentially was the question that we took to the uh, to Thor which is the you know the remote damage control resuscitation symposium that takes place in Norway each summer. we went over there and we said here's kind of our RFIs and here's what we need to be able to answer so we can build a program. And literally, it was from the go. We started talking about how do we identify our donors? How do we test them? And then how do we make this into a situation where they could use it at the point of injury? And literally, all we did was we just kind of stole everything from what has been previously done by so many. And it was a lot of help from the Armed Services Blood Program that came forward and said, we can do the testing for you, which we're going to have to get them to do any for us. But it was them coming forward and volunteering really to kind of say, yes, we'd be very happy to do this. We could easily identify who our group O donors were simply using, you know, the, the systems that are in place within the DOD. And once we did that, and we started off with a small cohort, you know, within 3rd Range Battalion. Because I think medicine is so ingrained in how Rangers operate, the volunteers, there was no hesitation. It was like, oh, will you get the opportunity to maybe help, you know, someone next to us? And this is all going to be part of the Ranger Medicine Program. Absolutely. I want to be, I want to participate in this. So I think that's probably why we were able to do it. So what probably seemed with little little effort put forth by us to be able to kind of make this happen and and that's you know up all because of the command structure and the command support that we re- that received from the the leadership there and and I think that's what was probably most important I think that probably goes back to a lot of successes within uh, medicine and uh, at least in the you know, pre-hospital medicine realm is having good command support and having those leaders who really understand that the medical people are really trying to do their best and really kind of save some lives out there.
0: Yeah, I think we've all figured out that rangers certainly lead the way when it comes to that. I've heard that the leadership feels it's so important that or every training evolution includes a, a medical component, which I've actually taken out to a lot of civilian practices, and they just think that's brilliant. But maybe you could help us understand the timeline a little bit better, because when I was doing some research a- ahead of this, I saw that the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care made their resuscitation fluid review, Um, specifically recommending Whole Blood as first-line therapy in 2014, I think is when I first saw that. And then I see that not long thereafter, you guys rolled out a Whole Blood program. Your first use of uh, Whole Blood on the battlefield was in March 2016, followed soon thereafter in March 2017 by receiving the Army's Greatest Innovation Award, and then the October, 2018 T-Tri-C update reiterates how important whole blood is. And just got to put this in because I'm sure, you know, Andre Cap quite well. Um, and they made a point of putting his quote in there in the 2018 T-Tri-C update. And he says, the historic role of crystalloid in trauma represents the triumph of hope and wishful thinking over physiology and experience. Tell us a little bit more about the timeline. When did you uh, first start this and and how long did it take to implement it?
1: You know, what's funny is from that quote, it actually comes from an article that came out as part of the RDCR supplement. So I think the entire article is filled with nice little jabs and Andre capisms, as I would call it. But uh, back to the timeline. So yes, it came out in 2014. I had the opportunity to go brief The COTSI on my ketamine use at one of the meetings in 14. And there I was approached by Gare, uh, who asked asked us if we wanted to come over to the conference, you know, to the RDCR conference. And uh, so this was February 2014, Uh, we were uh, invited. Uh, And about that time, obviously, the COTSI is going to put out their recommendations. We went to the RDCR conference in June of 14, and immediately upon getting back, started trying to implement this program, trying to find you know the money and uh, logistics, and and overall the oversight and how it was all going to work. Uh, without Andre Cap, this certainly would never happen. Without the help of the everyone at the Armed Services Blood Program, it wouldn't have happened. Within a year, so May 15 we started testing our donors and that we kind of saw that the first, actually the first unit to deploy with that capability and having like, you know, hey, here's the print off from the DOD site to where they can pull the donor list that uh, was in like August. And, you know, if you kind of looked at the casualties around the time, uh, we kind of noticed that there were probably a couple patients who may have benefited from whole blood. Now they did get plasma they did get the free striped plasma that we're that we're utilizing but they didn't get fresh whole blood it's kind of weird you know it's, it's the logistics of trying to do fresh whole blood you know and kind and if anyone's ever done point of injury care which probably everyone listening to this podcast has it's very difficult to provide that care let alone trying to draw you know whole blood so we kind of looked at it uh we get, and i deployed in February 2016. And uh, so we were over there together for a short period of time, and we started talking with the Armistice Blood Program again, and we worked up a memorandum that says, hey, we can just collect whole blood here and then ship it to you guys. Again, this is, all goes back to like World War II concept of providing whole blood. And so we're like, really? You can do that? And of course, we knew they had the capability, but the, the willingness of them to kind of step forward and say, hey, we can do this for you guys to give you guys whole blood. And uh, we're like, this is fantastic. And I said, well, what if we simply draw units of blood from our support personnel and then we can keep it? And that's what it initially did. But that, again, that kind of quickly realized that, uh, well, we're probably going to run out of our personnel pretty quickly. They can only donate every 56 days, so it's not going to work. And by uh, February, that was February, and then the, the March of 16, we uh, transfused that first unit on target. So in the in the big scheme of things, in the DoD realm of how things happen, this is obviously, this is light speed of taking a concept and implementing it. I, it literally took us a little over a month to be able to do cold, sort whole blood. And uh, that's simply... Uh, Amazing that we had that many people that were willing to say, yes, let's do this instead of, you know, kind of the classic things that we sometimes run into, which is, well, well, let me think about it or no, you know, the first answer out of the mouth. So that's kind of the timeline how we got to we said, hey, this is a pretty cool concept to, hey, we're we're doing this on at the point of injury now.
0: That is absolutely fantastic. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It is light speed for most of the resourcing that we've all experienced within the DoD. And so I guess we can then move on to the next area, which is since you guys established a beachhead with this in the pre-hospital whole blood where do you now see this being utilized? Is this still relegated to the Rangers? Has it branched out to other special operations components, conventional forces? Do you see this being used in the civilian setting?
1: I really don't see a reason why it can't be pushed down to more units. I certainly think the utilization of threshold blood should be an option for pretty much everyone. Um, the cost of titering, your donors is is pretty minimal in the big scheme of things. To have that option to be able to create threshold load tighter program is certainly feasible for I think every unit. It just takes a little bit of effort on on some people's part. I think as far as cold stored whole blood, it's hard to say. You know what what are their current. What the current casualty rates? I think that takes a little bit of analysis to be able to determine who would be best to receive that blood. I understand that maybe not every single unit may get this option. What I do think is important that we start uh, utilizing things like free-stripe plasma. And so recognizing that blood products are are beneficial and things like free-stripe plasma could be placed into an aid bag. And then, you know, use at the point of injury. So maybe maybe they can't get whole blood for whatever reason. But certainly, I think as we move forward, we recognize the benefits of blood and blood components that we start pushing these products and these, this capability down to the lowest level. I, I think as far as if you look at what we're trying to do here in Texas, we are looking at the first civilian fresh group O low titer O whole blood program being established within department of public safety and basically the special operations teams here within the in Texas. Uh, so we are they have tighter tested donors here and uh, have that capability now to be able to use fresh blood. Obviously it's not FDA approved blood product, but the medical directors for the department of public safety are willing to kind of take that hit if someone were to need a blood transfusion. Um, and I know there's going to be at least a talk at this year's SAMHSA that kind of talks about the progress of that program and how they're coming along. Other other places I know, you know, coleslaw whole blood is really kind of a big thing right now, as you talked about, and and I don't see it really being limited to a hospital. Uh, We see Strack down in South Texas being able to do a lot of great things with it. We understand, I think most people understand it can't go on every single ambulance, but can it go to... The majority of services within the United States, at least in some form or fashion, that maybe you know a supervisor is carrying that blood, then I I don't see why that is is something to kind of go that you know oh that's crazy. There's really no reason if we start building the communities like like Strack has done in South Texas to be able to say, hey, this is a community-based program to where we're utilizing at the trauma centers, these level three or four trauma centers, you know, these outlying community hospitals, helicopter EMS utilizing it, and we see the ground EMS utilizing it. So it's really about trying to create that setting and that sort of attitude and culture that allows that to happen.
0: Yeah, what a good point. And for those listeners who may not be as familiar with South Texasism, you and I, uh, Strack is the South Texas Regional Advisory Council, and they're a regional trauma committee that does a lot of organizing for uh, the entire scope of trauma care from pre-hospital through hospital care. And there are a number of excellent papers we'll try and reference in the show notes. They are the first regional trauma center in the country to implement a pre-hospital whole blood, though it is cold-stored whole blood program in the country. And I've actually spoken at a, a number of conferences about the benefits of that because as you so eloquently mentioned, um, when we try to implement these programs, if it's a, a onesies, twosies at different low volume ambulance services, everyone gets pretty upset about non-utilization of units. And, and the benefit of the STRAC system being regionalized is they put their blood units, I believe, initially on some of the low volume ambulances if it doesn't get utilized it then goes to a helicopter system which uh, has a much much higher utilization rate and then within a few days of that blood expiring it actually subsequently gets transferred to the level one trauma centers and it will absolutely get utilized there. What they've found is they have a 0% wastage since implementing that system, which is just such a great reminder that all of these systems, when implemented in a silo, aren't as effective as when they're implemented in a network. Uh, And if I think I remember correctly, in Texas out at Cypress Creek, their Thames team has also implemented a whole blood program, but I believe that's cold stored. Is that right?
1: I, I suspect so. I know that the concept of using fresh whole blood as an option is starting to kind of spread around. Obviously, you know, the DPS is pretty large. And so they, you know, it gets down to, you know, that area. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if, if they're also trying to, you know, implement something like that. And Strack and obviously Dr. Don Jenkins down there is just fantastic. He came from the Mayo Clinic, prior military surgeon. And and since getting out, he came from the Mayo Clinic and, and then has done some amazing things to be able to really make whole blood that option down there in Strack, And can't say enough awesome things about what he's being able to do for that program and kind of overall making the idea of cultural whole blood a serious idea for a lot of different regions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. He's um, certainly advanced a lot of the care that we were providing at at BAMC and was a progenitor of a lot of far-forward thinking, far-forward medicine. And it's an interesting and a subtle difference that I think may be beyond the scope of this discussion, but uh, folks who are unfamiliar should definitely explore the differences between cold-stored whole blood and fresh whole blood. Starting to wrap up this discussion, can you tell us, have we had any opportunity to actually measure the benefit to patients by implementing this pre-hospital whole blood program at the Rangers.
1: You know that there's ongoing analysis uh, with some of the stuff, you know, I'm certain I had the opportunity to try to pull some of that stuff from the DODTR and and try to provide some sort of analysis about it that that gives us some sort of results either good or bad or you know, whatever. Um, I know there's there are some different groups or people trying to kind of take the data and, and make some sense of it. I, I agree that we, that, well, I guess I kind of disagree. I think there's probably enough data out there within the pre-hospital setting. At least there's enough usage uh, across, I think, the entire DOD from pre-hospital cultural blood use the issue, I think, goes back to, I think, is probably what you've seen previously is our reporting and data collection from the pre-hospital setting is kind of awful. And how do you improve that? And how do you make it, in the, you know, make it uh, someone behind it who can actually get it done? I don't know. But I think there's probably the usages out there that the number-wise is.
0: Oh, that's really good to know. Well, thanks so much for your time. And I think we'll probably end there with a plug that Colonel Shackelford asked me to to pass along to everybody, which is um, as those folks start to incorporate some of these sets and reps for whole-blood, pre-hospital practice and training. Even if it's only notional training, there are still lessons to be learned from that and the Joint Trauma Service website under the forms section has a AAR after action report form that is specific to training scenarios. So we need more data so we can create better recommendations and data can even come from practice patients and I would encourage everyone to help populate those data sets so that we can create better recommendations. Future in 100 days, Dr. Andy Fisher and renowned ranger PA Andy Fisher. Thanks so much for your time and insight today. Do you have any passing thoughts for the listenership or any future directions of research in a pre-hospital setting that you're interested in seeing?
1: I'm always interested in kind of seeing what else can be done with blood. I think everyone... A lot of people kind of know where where I stand on the idea of pre-hospital medicine. Uh, you know, I'm a supporter of big things like Reboa, but in the right patient. But I certainly believe that we probably need a little bit more data before we kind of roll it out to everyone saying this is probably where, you know, this is a safe and effective option for patients. Uh, airway stuff is kind of interesting. Um, i kind of interested in kind of knowing a little bit more about chest trauma. We see a lot of people talking about doing finger thoracostomies recently versus needle decompressions. I still believe needle decompressions are worthwhile and think it should probably be tried before trying to take a scalpel just to your buddy's chest and say you're going to stick your finger in there because I don't think that's going to happen as readily as people might think so. I guess that's probably where I am right now. And always hemorrhage control stuff, more and more hemorrhage control. I'm always interested in that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm sure you'll find out here soon enough if you haven't already seen it on your rotations. But uh, I always enjoyed reading the 10 rules of a surgical resident in the Brook Army Medical Center uh, surgery room. And I think one of the first rules, it may be the first rule, was Taking a scalpel to another human being and expecting things to turn out well is a bold move. So <laughs> I guess we'll leave. Folks I've never with that.
1: heard that, but that—that's so true. It's <laughs> absolutely true. Um, It's—it's—it's it's scary. That the more I think it's, its classic. You know, the the more the farther along you get in medicine, and, and the more you learn, the the less you realize you know and how scary things can be uh, very quickly. Thanks so much, Andy. Really appreciate your time today. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: This is Sofia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSON. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSON Online, and to sign up to receive our free e newsletter on our website at jsumonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions. Shackelford from the Joint Trauma System reminding you to submit your DD-1380 and TC-3AAR to JTS after the mission.